Hi, it's Olivia Rosenman here, and I just wanted to let you know that to celebrate the Sydney Writers' Festival and all of the great minds that we have in town this weekend, we are releasing four special episodes in conversation with festival guests. You can find them all on your podcast player. Enjoy. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Mariam Sheik Hussain. Coming up, George Bernard Shaw once wrote that if all economists were laid end-to-end, they would not reach a conclusion. So how should the media report on economic news if the experts can't even agree? And distrust in the elite has been attributed to the rise of Trump, Brexit and right-wing populism across Western nations. But has the media learned any lessons? Joining me today is Sebastian Malaby in London, a Washington Post columnist who's previously spent 13 years at The Economist, covering international finance in London and serving as bureau chief in Southern Africa, Japan and Washington. He is also a senior fellow in international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. His latest book, The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, is the winner of the 2016 Financial Times and McKenzie Business Book of the Year. A product of over five years of research, the biography gives insight into the man who reigned over the global economy for nearly two decades. He will also be appearing at this month's Sydney Writers' Festival. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Barack Obama left the White House with his nation still in recovery from the 2008 financial crash. Last year, Trump used this to his advantage and told the American people it's not only the political system, but also the economy that is rigged against them. Voters seem to agree, not only in the United States, but in other countries, such as most recently France, where the rejection of the so-called establishment occurred. How extensive the media's role was in all this is still debatable. Sebastian, you've written that for experts to regain voters' trust, they need to woo the media. Does this mean you don't think the media itself is part of the problem? No, I think the media actually very much is the part of the problem. If you if you mean by media the methods by which we communicate with each other, I do think that the arrival of Facebook and Twitter and social media, which are definitely kinds of media, has changed the nature of the debate and made it harder for sort of mainstream opinions to break through because there's more noise coming from all kinds of fringe voices, which is more democratic, but also more chaotic and more susceptible to being exploited by determined demagogues. In your latest book, The Man Who Knew, it follows the life of former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan. You wrote that the tradition of bashing the Federal Reserve ceased almost completely in his time because politicians knew that journalists would be on Greenspan's side. Do you think that this sort of cosy relationship the media has with experts is what led to voters seeing the media as elite? Yes, I think there's some truth in that. I think that the mainstream newspapers and TV shows and radio shows, you know, are led by journalists who tend to operate in capital cities like Washington, D.C. or whatever, and they do develop sources amongst the people in power. And those sources, they want to protect them. They want to continue to have access to them. They sometimes become friendly on a social basis with them. They share a lot of the same outlook because they're living in the same city, thinking about the same issues. So I think there can be some capture 
there. I don't think the capture is extreme. I mean, after all, it didn't stop the Washington Post from bringing down Richard Nixon in the Watergate affair. And, you know, I worked at the Washington Post on the editorial page from 1999 for about eight years. And I wouldn't say that our relationship with uh, the people in power was cozy because, you know, we would constantly write things criticizing the people in power. So, you know, it's cozier than if you've got a blogger operating from miles away in some other city who never meets anybody who's in power, never talks to them, never tries to understand their point of view because they're living in a different place. So there's degrees of coziness here. I actually think that if we were to wind the clock back to the early 70s and say, you know, look at the Washington Post in Washington, D.C., it's kind of cozy on the one hand because all these journalists are part of the Washington system. At the same time, it was not cozy because they brought down the president of the United States in the Watergate scandal. That feels to me like a good mixture of close enough to power to understand it and write responsibly about it, but not so close that you're afraid to call them out when they do something really bad. In your opinion, how crucial was Greenspan's relationship with journalists to his 19-year reign at the Federal Reserve? Well, this is one of the big revelations when I was writing my book. You know, Greenspan, who was chairman of the Fed for almost two decades, I think is clearly the most important post-war financial statesman. What I didn't realize until I began to write the book is that he was also a Machiavellian political operator. And that included knowing how to cultivate journalists, knowing how to feed them information so that they would write stories that would suit Greenspan's political objectives. So an example early on was that I was reading through transcripts of Kissinger's discussions with his deputy in the 1970s when Kissinger was Secretary of State. At one point, Kissinger was attacked in an article in the New York Times. And he turned to his deputy and said, where did that come from? And the deputy said, well, we think Alan Greenspan leaked that information to the New York Times. So Greenspan was playing these games from the 70s by the time he became Fed chairman and the most powerful economist in the world in 1987. He continued to do this. And, you know, I think that if the White House tried to attack the Fed, uh, to cut its independence. Greenspan knew how to get journalists to criticize the White House for doing that, and that was part of his power. After the 2008 crash and the recession that followed, many blamed Greenspan for the role he played in it as a proponent of deregulation. He himself said that he had made a mistake in presuming that financial firms could regulate themselves. Yet in the years that followed, the media were accused of handling him with kid gloves. Should they have held him more accountable? I think it's true that because of Greenspan's status when he was Fed chairman, because of his ability to cultivate journalists, he was not criticised enough. He was known as the maestro, famously. In fact, it's rather ironic, given our discussion just now, in fact, that Bob Woodward, who was the famous Washington Post journalist who brought down Nixon, was also the journalist who wrote a book about Greenspan, which was called The Maestro. So he was dubbing Greenspan the maestro, the magician who could do no wrong. And I think that just shows you the power that Greenspan had over journalists. That is a true point, that Greenspan was allowed to avoid scrutiny because he did have this influence over the media. Some would argue that all economics is political. Since 2010, two Australian prime ministers have been destroyed over their attempts to put a price on carbon emissions. The opposition at the time successfully attacked it as a carbon tax that would hurt the hip pockets of ordinary Australians. However, just this year, the then chief of staff to the opposition leader admitted it was all just brutal politics. Yet the media at the time took their lead and called it a carbon tax. Should journalists be more careful and always frame economic debate in political contexts? 
Absolutely. I mean, journalists of all people should understand that everything is politics. And I think journalists do understand that. But it's a choice that you have to carefully make when you're reporting on political debates. I mean, to go back for a second to the Greenspan example, you know, part of the reason why Greenspan had this ability to influence journalists is that most of the time when Greenspan told them something, it was true. I mean, he actually had facts and numbers to support his point of view. And he wouldn't come and try and tell you something which was ridiculous and slant and bias and so forth. He would only tell you things if he thought you were going to believe them because he actually has some data to back it up. So I think that in the case of a carbon tax issue, a climate change debate, journalists on the one hand need to understand a bit about the science and understand that all the evidence shows that global warming and climate change are real problems and that man-made global warming is a big part of that. So if a politician tries to come and tell you that there is no such thing as proof for global warming, your lie detector should be flat red and, and buzzing at you. And if somebody says, well, you should call it a carbon tax, I think that's a more reasonable thing to say. But you should probably be careful that carbon tax does not acquire a negative connotation. I mean, there are some kinds of tax, which, you know, an income tax is an income tax bad. People accept income tax. Carbon tax, they might just accept that too as being legitimate because we need to tax carbon for our own climate future. So it depends how that phrase is used. And um, I think journalists have to be aware of how they are being used at all times. Economics isn't an exact science, yet newspapers run headlines as though it is. A study of 131 economists found that their answers to moral questions predicted their answers to empirical ones. For example, an economist who defines fairness as equality of outcomes might be more likely to say austerity hurts growth. Journalists are driven to find facts. Should they accept economists can't always give them this? Yes, I mean, the key thing is to speak to plenty of different economists and always be aware that there's a range of views, what the range of views is. Let's take a real example right now in the United States where the Trump administration says that it aims to get American growth up to 3% per year. Now, you can go and interview, and I've done this, conservative economists who are inclined to believe that tax cuts and deregulation will boost growth. And you can go and interview more liberal or Democratic Party economists who are more skeptical about tax cuts and deregulation. You will, you're quite right, get a range of answers. So in that sense, you're correct that the sort of ethical bias of the economists is probably going to affect their empirical claim. But neither side, and again, I've run this experiment, neither side in terms of sort of the responsible economist camp, people who are properly credentialed, who are professors of economics at uh, reputable institutions, neither side is going to say 3%. So you can talk to the range, you can understand that there's some disagreement. Some people say you could push the growth rate up to 2.25 if you deregulate it and had tax cuts. Uh, the more aggressive ones who believe in deregulation might say 2.75. Nobody says 3% is possible because of the slow rate of demographic growth in the United States and the slow rate of productivity growth. So that's an example where even accepting that there is a range of opinions, maybe driven by different ethical priors, it's clear that the Trump administration is making stuff up. You're listening to Fourth Estate. We're currently experiencing a housing affordability crisis in Australia. Everyone knows that houses are too expensive in most of our major cities, but nobody knows why. 
We've had articles saying it's definitely a bubble to no, it's not. We've blamed it on rich foreigners buying too much and even infuriated young people by publishing articles telling them they're locked out of the market because they're spending too much on avocado. Sebastian, why is it so hard for the media to explain housing prices? Well, I think there's two levels of problem here. You know, One is that intrinsically it's difficult to tell why a certain price in the economy is going up because there's multiple factors um, that influence it. I mean, the avocado example is obviously silly. Um, so we should you know, avoid too many stories like that. But when it comes to a question of whether it's because of demographic growth is pushing house prices up, or it could be that you know, restrictions on building permission are restricting supply of housing, that's the problem. Or it could be that there's simply too much money floating around the economy, making mortgages cheap and driving up prices. Those would all be, you know, without my knowing anything about the particulars of the Australian setting, in a housing market generally, those are things that all might be true. So it is intrinsically complicated, but then you have to go and either do your own analysis as a journalist or find reputable people who do not seem to have a bias and get what their research tells you. I mean, it could be that there's an academic who's studying this who is not attached to either political party and is not trying to make money out of the prediction. You can always find people who are more or less objective, not perfectly objective, but if you look hard enough, you can find good sources. I mean, I, as a journalist, both at The Economist magazine magazine and the Washington Post, the thing I sort of prided myself on doing was taking a debate exactly like the one you mentioned, where there's a lot of heat being generated by disagreement, and then really calling around the universities and searching on the web until I found people who seemed to be really credible, who had no axe to grind in the public debate, but were squirreling away in obscurity, uh, researching the question. And then by talking to them and understanding their point of view, I would be surfing, surfacing research that was otherwise sort of neglected in the debate. And, and showing the public by writing about it in a prominent newspaper what the real research tells us. Unsurprisingly, interest in economic news spiked in 2008. The Project for Excellence in Journalism found that the economy was the top story in US media in 2011 and research shows readers want even more financial news. What challenges do journalists face when trying to show how national and global economic issues affect people locally? Well, it is an enormously complicated matter to sort of understand how a change in, let's say, um, the European Central Bank's monetary policy might be affecting commodity prices and therefore might be affecting the Australian economy. I mean, there are a lot of links in that chain and they are difficult, but I mean, they're not impossible. And I think if you, again, find the sources who, in a dispassionate way, lay out the mechanism by which that chain works, then I think you can do a good job of serving your readers by informing them what the truth is. I mean, whether you're reading the International Monetary Fund's regular analyses of the world economy and then trying to relate that to your country. Uh, And so, you know, it's a challenge. Um, I think journalists need to understand that their job is not merely to go and interview politicians and people in the street and business leaders. They should also be interviewing thinkers and analysts and people with data because that is sort of the backbone of all these debates and that's what keeps you honest. Do you think that if journalists translated economic theories and jargons into ordinary language more often, people would be interested in it without the need for the collapse of the housing market to do so? 
Yes, I do think that. I think that if you can explain economics in simple terms, avoiding jargon, you're helping the world because you're spreading an understanding of how these things function. You can make economics sound quite scary, but the basic idea that if everybody tries to buy something, there'll be a shortage and then the price will go up, that's pretty simple. And I think you can just, by keeping a few concepts clear in your head and using plain language to explain them, you can create a more inclusive political debate. Have you noticed any shift in how the media covers economic news since the crash? I mean, I think there was a period right after the crash of um, a high degree of interest in finance and a high kind of appetite um, amongst both journalists and amongst their audiences to try to get, you know, engage, as it were, mental four-wheel drive to make the effort to understand more than we'd all understood before. I think that's kind of gone away a bit. I think, you know, we're now um, almost a decade uh, after the crash and uh, people's interests have moved on. We're now focused on populism, which was the subject you began the show with. We're thinking about robots and the displacement of workers by machines. We're concerned about simply the political theater with the Trump administration. There's the ongoing disaster in Syria. You know, there's a bunch of other issues which understandably are edging economics out of the news a bit. So I think there was a temporary period of deeper appetite for economics. And uh, this comes and goes in waves. And it probably will take another crisis for us to be refocusing our attention on, on economics. Newsrooms have to do more with less now. Why is it important that they have dedicated economic reporters? I think it takes a certain um, training and sort of habit and appetite to go and talk to economists and get their perspective on what's going on. And so I think it's important for newsrooms to have people who will be willing to do that, because I do think that research done by economists can shed light on political debates in a way that actually brings some truth to the table. And it's not, you know, gets away from just, you know, one person on the left says X, the person on the right says Y, we don't know who's right, so we throw our hands up, quote both sides, and sort of leave the reader to figure it out. I mean, that's a less informative type of journalism than quoting the left, quoting the right, and then quoting the expert who tries to sort through where the truth is. And, and I think including that expert perspective, even though experts have their failings, um, is a crucial contribution to journalism. The 24-hour news cycle is relatively new. Do you think it risks weakening the quality of economic and business stories? I think there is a slight tendency with 24-hour news to be massively focused on the latest, latest thing. And that crowds out analysis of what's going on, of deeper trends, of trends that may be developing over a matter of years, as opposed to just what's gone on in the last hour or two. But I wouldn't be too pessimistic about it because I think that although you can turn on the TV news or browse your Twitter feed and get 24-hour updates, there's a deep appetite out there uh, in the public for something that balances that. So you might want to flick on the news and see what the last development might be. But you also want to read The Economist magazine or uh, The New York Times or whatever your favorite publication is for a more considered analysis. And those publications are seeing their subscriptions go up, their circulation going up. They're doing better and better. The Washington Post, which I contribute to, has in the last few years done an amazing job in terms of building out its electronic reach and uh, 
has you know is, is read by more people than ever before. Uh, so I think that there is a place and a space for the thoughtful, less twenty-four hour type analysis, and it's almost complementary. The more people are getting twenty-four hour updates, the more they probably have a hunger to get some perspective on what those updates really mean. You're listening to Fourth Estate. The term fake news and elite media really stuck in voters' minds in the 2016 US elections. It stuck because there was already a disdain for the media who voters saw as friends of politicians and bankers. Does economic journalism face an even harder task of overcoming this elite tag simply because of the people it's covering? Yes, I think there is a problem there. I think that, you know, if you are the kind of journalist who speaks to the establishment and the economics profession and you're interviewing professors from the famous universities, uh, you will be tagged with this elite label and people who do not like elites will be suspicious of you. But, you know, I mean, I just don't see what the alternative is. If you want to bring truth to the public debate, if you want to bring our best attempt to do analysis and uh, use data to sort out what's right and what isn't right, then you've kind of got to go speak to the best analysts. And not everybody will like what you write, but you have to stick to the mission of telling the truth. I mean, an example of this is immigration, right, which is a very heated debate in lots of countries, uh, including the United States. It was a heated debate in Britain during the Brexit vote uh, in 2016 uh, on independence from the European Union. And people make all sorts of assertions about what immigration does to local people. It pushes their wages down, pushes them out of jobs. Well, actually, this is a subject that has been researched carefully by quantitative methods that do the best job that one can do of actually measuring what the truth is about what immigrants might do to the wages of native-born workers. And these studies, by and large, find that there's almost no effect on the wages of native-born workers. Now, people may not believe that, they may not like that finding, but if the reality is that the research suggests there is no negative effect on native-born workers' wages, we should report that. I mean, it's the truth. And um, I think journalists have to be militant about this. Journalism is not a popularity contest. Just as journalists shouldn't be trying to be popular with you know, people in power, the president of the United States, whatever, they should be willing to be critical of people in power. So they should be willing to you know, report without fear or favor what the best research is telling us. And if people don't like it, tough. I mean, climate change is another example. You know, all the science for a long time, I mean, I was writing about this at the Washington Post um, you know, in the 2000s, more than a decade ago. The science has been pretty clear that human beings are contributing to global warming in a really serious way. It's been been clear for, for, for more than a decade. And people who are in the coal mining business don't like to hear that. And they will call you elite or sellouts or whatever. Tough. It's the truth. You've got to tell the truth. That's your job when you're a journalist. As Election Day approached, headlines warned us that a Trump victory would tank the markets, but that hasn't exactly happened. Were these stories driven by emotion? No. Um, in fact, uh, the markets have come down again um, in the last uh, month or so. Um, you know, the dollar went up after Trump was elected. Now it's gone down to where it was at the election. Um, same kind of thing with uh, interest rates. Uh, the stock market um, started to fall this week when Trump uh, was in um, some political trouble. So I think that markets went up 
uh, initially because um, investors were hopeful that deregulation and tax cuts, particularly corporate tax cuts, would boost the profits of companies and therefore the stock market uh, you know, ought to be going up to reflect that um, higher profits. But now that Trump seems to be in a bit of trouble and he may not get his program passed through Congress because he's looking weaker, that's being reevaluated by the markets. So I think you can explain what's going on both in the stock market and with the dollar in fairly rational terms. And um, there's no big crisis of credibility uh, for the economists or for the media on this one. Staying on Trump, this week he said that no politician in history has been treated worse or more unfairly than he has, singling out the media once again. Mainstream media outlets are noticeably anti-Trump. You're a critic of him yourself. How do journalists fairly criticise his presidency without feeding into his supporters' belief that the system is against them? You know, that's a great question. And um, I've wrestled with this quite a bit myself. I've debated it a lot with my friends in the media in, in Washington and, and elsewhere. My view is that you've got to maintain a tone which is um, civil. You should avoid calling names. You should avoid just sort of being dismissive in a kind of reflexive way. Uh, on the other hand, you should deliver an assessment of what Trump is doing based on the facts of what he's proposing and based on the best analysis you can find of what the consequences would be of what he is proposing. You, you, so it needs to be a kind of fact-based, sober, non-name-calling kind of assessment. So I, particularly at the beginning of the Trump administration and during the transition after he was elected, but before he took office, you know, was willing to say things like, um, Trump says that the European Union is in trouble. Well, in fact, that's true. He's correct about that. There are all sorts of tensions within the European Union and the single currency, which is not working very well in Europe. Uh, and Trump is correct. If Trump wants to say that NATO has its problems because the Europeans don't spend enough money on defense and they're kind of free riding on the United States, well, guess what? That's true as well. So I think you've got to be open-minded and acknowledge when he says the correct thing. And sometimes the thing about Trump is that he's offering, a, you know, he puts his finger on a real problem. For example, the pain of blue collar workers who are losing jobs or seeing their wages stagnate. It's just that the solutions that he proposes, such as trade protection, are going to hurt the people that he would like to help. So I think you have to point that out and not do it whilst calling him names. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guest, Sebastian Malaby. Nice to be with you. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. My name's Mariam Sheikh Hussain. You can catch us at the same time next week.